All right, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and get started today. Welcome all. Thank you for coming. Um, we are continuing our series on Christology and uh, just kind of briefly getting you up to speed till now. If you haven't been following, hopefully you have, because it all kinds of build, kind of builds on each other. But uh, we've talked about so far. Um, Theology proper to the doctrine of God, simplicity, trinity, things like that. And then from there, we've gone into Christology and talked about specifics about that hypostatic union and the communication of the natures, if you remember last week. Um, I say all this because uh, as we go into what we're going to talk about today, uh, we are going to be kind of getting into the practical, more practical applications of what all that means for us as Christ as our mediator. So I hope you're as excited as I am. I'm hoping this it doesn't disappoint. Um, you know, but uh, I think that everything we've set up to now is going to be really important, so I just want you to keep all that in mind. With that said, uh, if you will, we'll go ahead and read our scripture reading for today uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, since we are talking about Christ as mediator. And we'll read verses 1 through 6. 1 through 6. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And after that, we'll ask the Lord to, to graciously bless our time. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of God. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and all for that, that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified or revealed in due time. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Lord God, we are humbled by these passages. Lord, help us to understand, especially in light of all that's been said, what it means for you to be our mediator, our great high priest, our prophet, and our king. Uh, Lord, knowing that from all these things and who you are as God, who you are as man, O oh great Christ, that all these are necessary, Lord, for you to be our redeemer and our savior. And, Lord, that there can be no other. And this is where, as we acknowledge as Christians, that all other religions fail. And, Lord, you, and you are exalted um, by that. Lord, I pray that this, uh, that this would, would glorify you, Lord, that uh, we would be edified, Lord. We would be prepared to worship, Lord, on your, on your great and holy Sabbath day. And, Lord, I pray um, humbly that you, that you keep me um, from speaking things that ought not be spoken. Keep me out of error. And, Lord, to illumine the minds of uh, my listeners. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would come and do that for us. For without him, we are lost. Lord, we love you and thank you. In your name, amen. Okay, so, um, again, kind of caught you up to speed, hopefully. So, um, of course... We've, we've been talking again about the doctrine of God, and last week specifically, we led into the third part of the hypostatic union, right? And from that, went into 
the communication be, between the nature. So just real quick, um, just by way of review, we talked about that it's probably most proper, I think it is most proper, that the, uh, that the view of the hypostatic union that we ought to hold that's most consistent, I think, with, uh, with Reformed doctrine is what's called what, if you remember? Terminative. So what does that mean? Just real quick. You know, you know I was going to ask this. The birth of Christ, Christ um, brings completion to human nature. Yeah. Um, the human nature is created. Yes. So establishes personhood for the human nature. I think that's, that's great. Um, and so, and yeah, so, so our view uh, of the hypostatic union, I think, um, hopefully as we saw last week, grants us the ability to talk about in all actuality, and, and with all these details, uh, uh, grants us the ability, if we, are, if we are going to talk about Christ and the hypostatic union, to talk about a real, meaningful incarnation of Christ. Okay, And so, if we're going to do theology, I think that's important that we do these kind of things. Um, hopefully, I don't have to sell you on that, but I'm just giving you the reasons as to why. And so, from there, from there last week especially, I think the proof is in the pudding on this one, so... If any of you were around for the discussions last week, I think that we started connecting a lot of dots. But we talked also about the result, which kind of flows from this. I hope we kind of showed that. We didn't talk too much about it. But we talked about um, something called, can anybody remember? I can't spell it right. So here was the fancy Latin term that, Makes me look kind of pseudo smart. The communicatio idiomonum, and what does that mean? Communication of properties. Communication of properties, or if you want to think about it in a more rudimentary way, or uh, I would say better way, but uh, I think more uh, kind of to help you understand uh, the communication between the natures. Or sort of, you know, how the nature's interacting Christ. And so what did we say? How, how did we establish this? How did we establish how we're supposed to do this? And I know I'm asking a lot of questions, but we predicated this. Th- this sort of gives us the, the, the line, the, the hard line almost, of a line of demarcation on what's proper to humanity and what's proper to deity, Right? Okay, so what did we establish from there? How did we establish the communicatio? We talked about... Yes, yes. So we talked about communicable and incommunicable attributes. Okay. And so just real quick regarding those... um, what we said about communicable attributes is basically those attributes that are proper to humans only. Now, it doesn't mean they aren't proper to God, but it means that they're communicated by God to us in a finite sense. By comparison, these that God has, so, so these are all with respect to God as the origin, okay? These only God has. They're incommunicable to a human nature, right? So they're predicated only of the divine. And so with communicable attributes, we can just name a few again. What would you say? I'm not going to write them out, but... Communicable. Oh, communicable. Yeah. Mercy. Mercy. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, so, but incommunicable would be things like what? Yeah, omniscience, omnipotence, aseity. I mean, list could go on and on there. So, the point in all this was, if you didn't catch it last week, and I think we did. Again, proof was in the pudding. We had a good talk, I think, at the end. I didn't do anything for like the last 20 minutes, I think, um, which is good. Uh, but... This, this, this tells us, and again, it draws a hard line on what is proper to humanity, again, and what is proper to deity, okay? And what we share in common with deity in a finite sense and what we don't, okay? So Christ having two natures, you can see what follows from that. So, and what we said about that is that the interaction or the communication of the natures or properties, or the communicatio idiomatum, must be stood either, and I said this, either really or verbally. Remember that? Okay, either really or verbally. So what do I mean by really or verbally? Come back up and wait. So I gave some. I gave primarily examples of verbally, and that's those are I think the most important ones when we're reading scripture. So I gave an example, for example, of John eight fifty eight. Right, John eight fifty eight. So what does John eight fifty eight say? If you can't remember. Okay. Or Abraham was, I am. So that gives us a little bit about the communication of properties or natures because we wouldn't say that the person speaking these words, that the person, I was like, what was that? Um, that the person speaking these words, he is indeed existing from all eternity before Abraham was, I am, but. In his humanity, does he, does, does he exist from all eternity in that sense? No. I hope not. Otherwise, we have an eternal incarnation, which is weird. Um, I'm just going to leave it at that. Weird. Um, so, so it's a verbal distinction. Okay. So I think the way that I put it was is that the human nature itself... What well, did not exist from all eternity, but the person speaking those words did. Does that make sense? Okay. Clear as mud, hopefully. So, so we said that there are, that, that the communicado could either be really or verbally. I, think, I don't think I talked a lot about really. Um, really, what I would just say is that, of course, what is properly communicated to the human nature is proper to the human nature, like love, mercy, and things like that. Those would be real, real distinctions that we would make. Um, does that make sense, too? Okay. Um, okay, so I'm hoping you see up till now, and this is where we're going to go into our new stuff, I'm hoping you see up till now that showing all these things, first of all, that we not only see how everything connects, um, but that showing all these things, we see how Christ can be a real mediator for us, a real mediator for us. Everything, and I'm, I'm, 
Everything, I think, at least conceptually, we have said so far in this series is crucial for Christ to be our mediator. Um, I think there is very little place to compromise on the fact of the natures and the communication of them and all that. Okay, and I'll go into some of that. So, from this, we talk about Christ as mediator. And I'd like to first go to our confession If you have that, that's fine. If you don't, I'll read it to you. So our confession in chapter 8, paragraph 1, and the name of the chapter is of Christ, the mediator. Um, It says this. It pleased God and his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be a seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called justified, sanctified, and glorified. And that's a wonderful statement. Um, So I see two things in this particular paragraph, okay? And I think pulling out those two things will actually help establish a foundation for how we talk about or how we start to talk about is Christ, the mediator. So one thing that I, that I think will help us for approaching this is understanding what the very word mediator means. And it means, I think, I don't just think, but I think, putting, to, putting it to you here, um, is predicated upon two aspects or two relations with respect to him or to Christ. Okay, well, what I mean by this. A lot of this we've already been talking about already, um, but let me erase here. Everybody got this? Great. Any questions so far? Okay. So two things. I'll put this here. So two aspects that we want to speak of how Christ is mediator or what we mean when we say as Christ is mediator. Okay, so the first thing is, and this is what I'm going to be primarily talking about today, if not for the rest of the lesson, because I don't have anything after that. So, um, but it's in his person. So he is mediator in his person. What I mean by that, I hate when I erase because then I can't write again, or I don't dry it off enough. In his person. What I mean by that is, again, this is actually what we've been talking about or laboring so hard to pull into the conversation till now. This is in regard to the two natures or the union of the two natures, okay? In regards to the union of the two natures. So he is mediator with respect to the union of the two natures. In other words, he is mediator with regards to his person Because he is the middle one who stands between God and man. Do we see that? Okay, that should follow. He is the one that stands between God and man substantially. So it's a substantial predication. And what I mean by that is essentially uh, kind of a, a crass way to put it is He has the metaphysical equipment 
to even be qualified to be mediator. So hopefully we've seen that up to now, right? He has the two natures, one person, so on and so forth, hypostatic union and all that. I want to read from also, and it's wonderful how our confession of faith lays this out, by the way. Um, it like goes step by step and spelling out all these things the way that I'm doing it. Um, so I kind of borrowed from that. Borrow if you, if you want to put it that way. So um, chapter 8, paragraph 2. And I've read this one a couple of times already, but I think it's worth reading again because it'll, I think, help us to see this. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, then what did when the fullness of time was come, take unto him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. So was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that the two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion which person is very God and very man, yet one. Christ, the only mediator between God and man. You see what I mean? So, it's, so when we say, when we talk about mediator in this sense, we're talking about a substantial, the way he exists, I guess is the best way to say it. Again, he has a medical, physical equipment to, to actually carry out his office. So from that, I wanted to ask a couple of questions. And... Um, I think I'm going to enjoy these. Anyway, um, I want to ask a couple of questions. Why then, could, why then could a human person not be a mediator? So these should answer themselves to a degree. But why, why couldn't a human person be a mediator? No way for divine reconciliation. Yeah. Anything else? I mean, Seth's right. One human who is not God does not have the capacity to uh, stand in the place of all other humans. Right. He, 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 well, now it even goes so far as to say he might have the capacity to stand in the place of all other humans, but not the capacity to stand before God. Right. So, um, yes, I, I would agree. Um, and if I'm saying something wrong, just let me know. I don't think so. I don't think yet, but I just may here in a minute. Um, hopefully not. The mediator not. would have to be sinless too. That's right. But that's exactly right. I didn't bring that up because um, we were, you know, we're we're um, not trying to limit to to substantial applications. But you're exactly right about that too. So yes, of course, the mediator would need to be sinless as well. Um, and we talked a lot about that with the hypostatic union and how that worked. Okay, so, but what about on the other side of the coin? Uh, what about, so, so we said, yeah, of course, and this becomes fairly obvious, um, no human or humanity alone uh, can be mediator. But what about just the divine? So what if you have just a divine person absent in the human nature? Why couldn't that be mediator? How is that 
Well, notwithstanding that we're we're not discounting the possibility that God could have saved us some other way, but since it's this way, it is a theological necessity. It's a theological necessity. They can't just be divine. Okay. So in what way is he related to us if he's not human? Right? Hopefully I'm not making this too boring. But... Yeah, I didn't say fittingness because it's an older term, but all fittingness means is theological necessity. So since a distance between God and man must be bridged, it must be done in this way. So it's theologically necessary. Is it absolutely necessary? No, God ha- God's omnipotent. Okay, does that make sense? Uh, also, bringing in... Absolutely. Yeah, just making the distinctions here, but absolutely right. Yes? I was just going to say, just looking at it, to properly be, fulfill the office of priest, he has to be from the people. He has to have him be representative to us before. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and we'll, we are going to get more deeply into that next week, but that's exactly right. Yeah, so he can't be, he can't, Essentially, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but he can't fulfill any of the offices that are that he's anointed unto by the Father unless he is first substantially God and man. Okay? So does that make sense? Okay. So whenever I find a good opportunity to talk about church history, I will take that opportunity. And this is, guess what, one of those opportunities. Um, so again, we have labored greatly to have right theological tools, I think, to understand, uh, again, mentioning the theological necessity of the incarnation and the union of the two natures. Um, so keep that in mind as we briefly talk about these, because I want you to be thinking what's wrong with them, if there's something wrong with them. Maybe there's not. Anyway, um, I know that's, I'm so dramatic. Anyway. I know. Set myself up for failure sometimes. Um, Okay. So uh, I'll say kind of as a preface to this. um, I think it's fair to say that prior to some of the great controversies that start to occur in the 4th century, um, 
the Trinity or a Trinitarian uh, understanding of of uh, God is sort of presumed. Um, are all the details and in in articulations worked out? No, of course not. But it's presumed. And the reason for this is, of course, our early church fathers are reading Scripture. They're assuming biblical monotheism, and they're seeing that Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and come to the logical conclusion that God is a trinity. Okay? So that, that's, that's kind of in the background. Now... The first one I'd like to talk about, you probably could guess, is the Arian controversy. So most of you may have heard of this. So the Arian controversy. I'm trying not to spend too much time, but I do get carried away. So how much time do I have left? 15 minutes? Man, okay. Okay, Arian controversy. Uh, Man, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um... Okay, so this occurs between 318 and 3... It's the board, I'm telling you. I have to come over here and write. 318 and 325. Um, really all the way to 381 if you want to get technical. But um, the Arian controversy. So, so you, have this, you have this presbyter, a presbyter um, in the city of Alexandria, Egypt, right? And his name is Arius. Okay, so... You also have a bishop there, Alexander of Alexandria, which is, seems original. Um, so he's bishop there, so he's over Arius. But Arius, in the background, like, he, he's picking up, a, and I wanted to go into this, but now, that I, now I know I don't have time, and I feel rushed and really stressed out about it. Um, he's picking up a lot of his, um, a lot of his uh, theology on this that we'll soon talk about. A lot of his theology on this from Origen, okay? So, so Origen, I kind of like Origen, okay? He, he's, he's living in the second and third century. Um, but he said some kind of wonky things, is how I would say. Um, he said some weird things. And, um, but he did give us like a lot of our language in the way that we talk about God and the Trinity. So thumbs up for him. But he did say that in the act of eternal generation, or so in the act of the Father begetting the Son, um, he said that in that begetting, a different, lesser essence is produced. Okay, so sort of an intermediary divinity or something like that. Arius actually takes this further, and he, and he, right, he rightly says, well, you can't really have levels of divinity, so Christ is either God or he's not, Right? So again, you had Origen, and uh, Arius had other influences too, but, and then Arius, and he just said, if you have somebody that's begotten of the Father, or begottenness in general, then, then you have Jesus, or I should say, really, really the argument, by the way, isn't Christological, it's over theology proper, but you have the Son of God, that's, and again, I'm oversimplifying this quite a bit, equals the creature, okay? Yet somehow, which is, this is really weird to me, um, a creative act can only, like, biblically, biblical evidence shows that a creative act is only predicated of God, like, ever. Um, I mean, like, anyway, but he still holds, he still holds that the Son of God creates, you know, through the Father, so on and so forth. 
Whatever. So he takes, it, he takes basically origin to its logical end and say that the sun is a creature. And he starts saying this, and this is where I want to look really smart, so just, um, just bear with me. He starts saying this. So I know there's some people that know Greek in here. Are yes. Son of God does not equal creature or does I'm sorry, does equal creature. That wasn't, that wasn't confusing. That's what says. What's that? That's what Arius says. Yes. Fundamentally, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he starts saying this. Uh, please forgive me if my breathing marks and all that aren't in the right place. Uh, what does that mean, Greek people? I had to look it up, so don't don't feel bad if you don't know. The word not is in there. <laughs> the word not is in there, yes. He was this before he was not. Yeah, so essentially so um uh there was when he was not. So that's where the saying comes from that we say it modernly, there was a time when the sun was not. So if you notice, too, just a side note, this is where I run out of time. Um, side note, uh, it rhymes pretty well in Greek. If you said, they would sing this in the streets of Alexandria. It would catch on, among other things. But anyway, this is what he would say. There was when the sun was not. So in eternity past, the sun was created somehow. I don't know what his conception of eternity was, but anyway. So this leads to... A condemnation of Arius at, this, is, this date's important, um, a condemnation of Arius and his doctrine um, in 325, what occurred in 325, everybody should know this, Council of Nicaea. So you have a formal anathematizing of him and his teaching, however, his teachings persist all the way to about 381, really the middle of the 5th century, but like it kind of doesn't become a cult group till after that. So I was going to talk about Eunomius as well, but I don't think I have time. Okay. Just think of Eunomius as extreme Arianism. You think, how could he get more extreme than this? It does. So, okay. What would be a modern... So, so this should sound familiar in some modern articulations of cult groups. Huh? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to a to a degree, but yeah, like I mean they denied Jesus Christ, so that's what they are. Yeah. But the way the way that the Don't be sorry. But the way that Jehovah's Witnesses articulate who Christ is with slight modifications is man, I could tell you, I could read like this all about Arius. I'm going, are these these are Jehovah's? These are neo Arians. Anyway, just just saying. Huh? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they appreciate that title. So anyway, okay. The last thing that I wanted to talk about, uh, and again, so okay, this was the main thing. I think so. Um, the main thing. What are the implications? Implications. If this is true, what are the implications? Again, understand that, and we should understand that this controversy wasn't really about the incarnation. It's about who Christ is eternally, essentially. 
eternally, but not eternally. Um, so what are the implications here for Christology? So you got no deity, right? That's what you're saying. Yeah. No de- no real deity anyway. Deity. 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 Sorry. That's fine. This is why the board is my enemy. So, so. This is why the board is my enemy. So. So. Huh? Yep. That's a good point. Excellent point. Yes. No mediator at all. Don't have a mediator. Um, I'm glad I worked hard on that, Hal. Thank you. Uh, so, so essentially, no deity. Um, last things. I kind of have to. I don't have to rush, but I'll just keep you in here as long as I, as long as I can. Yeah. Any questions so far? We don't want to be Aryans. Right? Don't want to be Aryans. Um. Uh, I, I, I don't think I think we can say that's heresy. We we use that word probably too much these days, but that's heresy. Um. So uh, so then there's the Christological controversies of the fifth century. So uh, fifth century, primarily fifth century, uh, Christological controversies. All these words are long too. Uh, fifth century. I'm just going to write. You notice how my writing gets more beautiful as I rush. Um, so, the first one that I think of is one called Apollinarianism. Does this sound familiar? Apollinarianism. I think that's spelled correctly. I actually looked this up to make sure I didn't spell it wrong. Um, and that would hold, okay, so it's more complicated than what I'm putting to you here, but the basic gist of it is, is that, Apoll- and he changed his position. So it comes from a guy named Apollinarius of Laodicea. Um, it's actually kind of going on in the same time frame as the Arian controversy up to 321. So it's technically not 5th century, but it's still condemned. It's actually condemned in 381 at um, the Council of Constantinople. Anyway. That's for your information. Um, but he, he, he basically said, regarding the natures of Christ, basically said that instead of, so instead of Christ having a rational human soul, instead of Christ having a rational human soul, in the incarnation, that's replaced with the divine only. So divine only. What are the implications here? So you have some kind of... Zombie Jesus, I don't know how else you would say that, um, that has a divine nature only. Yeah, yeah, there's no. So, so again, no mediator, so he doesn't have the metaphysical equipment. Glad I coined that term. Um, so he's divine only, really. Um, so his nature is only divine. Which also means, but, but there's some other implications here that I think we need to think about. Um, it also means that, what about, what about his, uh, his intellect? What, what did we say about nature and intellect? That he has two minds, right? And whether 
himself. Right. Yeah, so so not only is this something called monophysitism, I'm not going to write that out, just meaning one nature, but also monothelitism, which is one will. And the issue with especially the will part of it, so, so the nature part of it, you don't have a mediator, of course. But the issue with the will and the intellect part of it is that what about him being a prophet? Is he actually a prophet then? Does, does only a divine mind need to have something revealed to it? No. So he's not a prophet. So he's not really, you know, and this all, this all flows from the confusion of the nature and all that. So. Yep. Because those are human offices. Yep. So, again, needs the substantial equipment to do actually do execute his office. So, number two, Eutychianism. Eutychianism. Um, nope. There's no H. Eutychianism. Something like that. But Eutyches. Eutyches. Um, I think 380 to 4 something. I can't remember. Um he basically said, again, I'm simplifying here for the sake of brevity. He basically said that there is a mixture of the natures, basically. So he would say that during the incarnation, divine and human come to net together to form sort of a new nature. Okay. Um, so new nature. Again, that's a really gross oversimplification, but a new nature. By the way, go and read about these. They're really interesting. Um, uh, a new nature. Again, what's the issue with this? <laughs> no mediator. So what kind of nature do you have is my question. Like, yeah, some... If it's divine, would that mean that there were two gods? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think more of a like, like a Hercules or something like that. I don't know, or or whatever. It's like... Yeah, there's, that's why I said it. I'm oversimplifying. Just to, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, so new nature. Um, I don't know what this... Yeah, I love, I love it. Um, so new nature. I don't know what this new nature is. Um, again, we, we distinguish what's proper to each nature. With this one, I don't know what... Personally, I don't know how... I mean, he's not divine, he's not human, he can't stand before either God or man in, in some sense. Um, so, and again, you still, you still have monophysitism, so there's that problem, can't be a mediator. And then you still have, if he only has one nature, you still have one, the one will problem as well. So, now, I don't know as far as like how that works with being a prophet, but let's just say that it doesn't work. Um, the last one's Nestorianism. And this is where we'll kind of finish up. Historianism. We kind of talked about this one. Anybody? I'm gonna. I'm gonna give. I'm gonna poll the audience. What is Nestorianism? Just very briefly. Distinct persons. Yeah. So 
the way I illustrate, the way I thought about it on here, or the way I kind of illustrate it, is yes, two persons in Christ instead of two natures, or at least that's the logical conclusion. We could argue about whether Nestorius actually held this view or not, but that's the logical end. So, for example, he would actually say that only Jesus, the man, suffered on the cross. What's the problem with that statement? Okay. Right, and so that automatically assumes that there's some other divine person out there somewhere too. Now, how would we say that? Let's correct Nestorius. How would we say, if we're talking about the cross, that Jesus suffered on the cross? How would, how would we correct that? The Son of God suffered on the cross according to his nature. Yes. How am I need you to let somebody else answer that? <laughs> okay. So, and we know the implications with that, too. Um, we're going to skip past that. I'm sorry that I've been so long-winded. I actually didn't think I would be once again, but here we are. Okay, so, reading the, the third paragraph of chapter 8 of our confession, it says this, and this is getting us ready for the next, or getting us thinking about the next um, Sunday school. It says, The Lord Jesus, in his humane nature, Thus united to the divine and the person of the Son was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a surety, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. So that assumes what we've been saying, that he's substantially prepared to actually execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king. So, of course, the second part of when we say God as mediator will lead into next week is in his acts and exercises. In his acts and exercises, so he's mediator not only substantially, but also in executed, execution of his office as prophet, priest, and king. And that depends on what we've been saying up to this point. Yes? I just want to mention, Pollinarianism isn't gone today either, because you have, I think it's William Lane Craig who's got a neo pollinarian view about the person of Jesus. So just like we still have... Uh, Aries is Pharisee, but that's what JW is. We have. Uh, oh, yeah, they're. Christianity, a neo pollinarian, who's the most popular today. Oh, you're absolutely right. Uh, I wasn't. I thought of William and Craig, but I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to. Well, I think also because in most evangelical churches, these things aren't studied at all, people probably accidentally slip into Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's all I have. Who would like? Huh? All right, let's do it. Who wants to pray? Go ahead. Good God, we love you. We thank you for your revelation to us. Thank you for the study of Richard and his presentation to us about the divine nature and the human nature of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Pray that we are we ponder upon these deep things of, of you. Thank you. We're thankful that you have revealed these things to us. We pray for our worship time together as we continue to um, worship as a 
believing body of believers here and that we apply all these truths during this time that we leave this day during this time loving you more than we have whenever we arrive we pray for your blessings of your spirit during this time and all these things we pray in Jesus name Amen I'm telling you it's the board I blame it on all I blame it on all of you